The Hero's Journey podcast is filled with an abundance of spoilers. If you haven't read this week's book, I recommend you do so, as it will certainly help you follow along. Although, if you're only interested in hearing our take on this story, listen on. Hello, and welcome to A Hero's Journey, a podcast in which my two far smarter friends, Alex, and I'm Zach, attempt to convince me, your judge, Jack, and you, the listener, whether a story is a hero's journey. The hero's journey is Joseph Campbell's monomyth. It breaks down the most common recurring themes of our stories into a single template. The journey consists of three overarching parts, the departure, the initiation, and the return. The departure is where our hero is called to action and leaves their ordinary world behind them. The initiation, where our hero undergoes the trials and tribulations of their quest before ultimately achieving their goals. And finally, the return, where after having completed their quest, our hero must return to some semblance of normalcy. This week on A Hero's Journey, we're going to be discussing The Eye of the World by Robert Jordan, the first book in the Wheel of Time series. This book follows Rand, Matt, and Perrin, three youths from the two rivers, as they are called into the greater world by Moraine, an Aes Sedai, wielder of the One Power. Um, there is a greater group that they travel with and eventually are split from, and they each have their own adventure on the way to the Eye of the World, where it is discovered that Rand can wield the male half of the One Power, which will eventually turn him crazy and is potentially the Dragon Reborn. Uh, uh, let's begin where all truly fantastic epic fantasy stories begin, with our departure from an ordinary world and our call to adventure. Arguing for this week, Alex. For this story, we're going to be following Rand's adventure. And I think that Rand's call to adventure is when he is taking Tam, having just been injured by the Trollocs, to Edmund's Field, and he hears that Tam found him uh, on the side of a mountain and is not his biological father. So Rand's quest is going to be to find his place in the greater world, find out where he is truly from. His refusal of this call is wanting to stay at Edmund's field. And I think we can emphasize this with a quote. Uh, this is Rand talking to Tam. I thought you would try to talk me out of it. I thought you would have a hundred reasons why I should stay. Then eventually, as all good heroes, Rand does leave and he meets his mentor, Tom Marilyn, the Gleeman. Tom provides advice about the outside world and dreams. He gives, um, gives Rand flute lessons and tells him where he can find safety uh, as Tom is well, killed, in quotes, at Whitebridge. For crossing the threshold, we have the road to Terran Ferry where uh, the whole group is being chased by Trollocs, Fades, and all manner of creatures. Um, this is where they're leaving, where the group, including Rand, is leaving their known world of the two rivers. And this is also the first time that Rand uses the one power. 
And finally, for Belly of the Whale, I think that Barallon represents this. Moraine recommits Rand to his quest. This is where Rand starts having dreams of Balzaman and talk about the Eye of the World. Rand's encounter with the White Cloaks shows that he is willing to change and not act as a sheep herder anymore. Min's reading of him and the group further emphasize that they are going on a quest and can no longer turn back. Uh, Min says to him, go on then, but you won't escape. All right. Well, if we, we start at the beginning and I'm more than willing to give the ravings of a near dying father figure as the call to adventure. If the end of the journey is for, uh, is for Rand to you know figure out where he came from. Uh, then fine, that's the adventure that that we see Rand going on. Um, and again, I think we have a fairly stereotypical refusal of the call, um, where he says, "No, I, I like my homely village. I want to stay here with my family and my friends." Um, although I think he mainly pays lip service to this idea. Because there really was no choice for him to stay due to the destruction of said village. So I think it really, if we look at the what the refusal of the call says, the future hero first refuses to heed it. This can come from a sense of duty or obligation, fear, insecurity. All those things are fitting. But I, I often feel like that some of our heroes have that Rand doesn't have is the actual ability to say no without horrible... I guess, ramifications, you know, at least on a personal level, like things may happen on a grand scale that he could have, our hero could have prevented, but on a very personal, like, this is my hometown being destroyed level. um, I I don't think that's something we, we, at least we've seen in the books we've analyzed super often. So Zach, one one quick clarification thing, the call to adventure is not to find out where he comes from as much to find out his place in the world. Small difference, but important because I think Can you're trying you to set that me up. Can you sing that to us in a Disney song? <laughs> no. <laughs> um, and I agree with you that Rand's refusal is it. It is kind of lip service. We've had this debate a couple times now. I don't think that he could stay in Edmonds Field, but he has a very strong desire to stay. If he if he had had the option, if he wasn't if staying in Emmonsfield didn't put the entire town at risk, I believe you would have. And we can see this evidence throughout the whole book where Rand continues to say, I want to go back to Edmondsfield. After this quest is done, I'm going to go back to Edmondsfield. I'm going to go back to my father. So I see where you're coming from, but it's stronger in my mind than some of the other ways we've said they're playing lip service. Okay. I mean... I I see that argument. I have no problem with it inherently. Um, it's interesting that you've chosen Tom the Gleeman as the mentor for Rand here in a book in which pretty much everybody but Rand has a greater level, and the other three bump two bumpkins from Two Rivers have more of an understanding of how the world works uh, than he does. Um, I understand he spends that significant amount of time with them upon the boat. Um, 
and teaches him skills that are relevant for his time after Tom is quote unquote passed from this world. What I think what it really boils down to is that the lessons and like information that Tom imparts on Durand are in the grand scheme of things of a fairly low power and influence level, which doesn't to say they aren't useful to Rand on more than one occasion. I just think it's a very interesting choice by the author to give him that more father figure kind of role after um, we leave Tam. Do you have any, like, why shouldn't it have been Moraine or Land who taught him the ways of the sword at first? Like, why is it Tom both in the story itself and why do you think the author chose Tom as the primary mentor? Yeah, so uh, I think that Tom is the mentor here because Rand and the rest of the group trust him more than they trust Moraine and Land. They are following Moraine and Land because they don't have another choice. They trust and listen to Tom for reasons unknown, but probably because he is that grandfatherly figure. Uh, I think he tells Rand and Matt later in the story why he's trying to help them because of his nephew and his nephew's trouble with Aes Sedai earlier in his life. I think that Tom uh, acts as an advisor, sets Rand up to start dealing with more diplomatic situations than just, uh, you know, country bumpkin situations. Without going into the rest of the story, this is my second time through the story, same for Zach. So we, we have some outside knowledge, trying not to get into that too much. I think that Tom is the mentor for this story, whereas other characters, such as Lan, are mentors later. Um, and they, I don't they, they, I do the guess they fairly blend into the person that we see Rand becoming at the end. But I, I like your point on that the we see him using the things that Rand taught him almost immediately. Whereas I think if if we had focused, or the author especially, if Robert Jordan had focused more on the sword play or the magic at the beginning, the journey to the, the, the Queen City or even to the Eye of the World would have had a very different, like, different tint. You mean rather it. than homeless travelers, Rand and Matt would have been stoic up-and-coming warriors and Gollum? Even that, I think they would have they would have had enough like a capability in their either their magic or in their uh strength of arm that would it might have actually gotten them into more trouble because mm. they they wouldn't have been at a level of proficiency to really take care of themselves uh they would have been somewhere on the wrong side of the dunning kruger effect i mean sure it, they they would have been you know strong enough to be uh, somewhat of a challenge for somebody, but not enough to actually protect themselves. Whereas they were able to fly enough under the radar as traveling Gleeman apprentices that they avoided most of the trouble uh, as opposed to welcoming it. Um, wow. So I, I guess right. I think that's what Robert Jordan was trying to do here. It's just very interesting in a book that's a very high fantasy book that the first teacher of these in very important characters is one with, with little, uh, to no ability. So I think as far as crossing the threshold goes, you've 
chosen a fairly good point. The the road to Terran Ferry showcases that they're certainly getting themselves into something and that Terran Ferry is at least a town with which they are familiar as they've dealt with people from it. But having never been there, I feel like there was certainly a amount of crossing the threshold just in the leaving of Edmund Field. And that, like, by keep pushing the threshold further away from their starting point, you do disservice to the action that happened between the two. Yeah, um, I see your point there. Uh, there's just so much action that happens in the book that it's it's hard to include everything. And the reason I picked the Terran Ferry is because there is a there's a distinct marker, the river that they cross. You could consider that a threshold. But you're right; they have already passed beyond what uh, they know of the world. They've never been to Terran Ferry before. They've never, in fact, been to, I think, Watch Hill. They say Watch Hill is far away. There are there are several different thresholds they cross. And again, I just picked this one because of the, the distinctness of crossing the river and Rand using the one power. So it, it hits the threshold in a dual manner for me. No, I'm going to ask you to kind of narrow in on your belly of the whale, mainly because you've kind of spread it fairly thin with several different interactive points is the is the belly of the whale simply being in that city and the events that transpire within it or is it the encounter with the white cloaks is it the dream or is it men which one of those things do you think is the moment because even though we've talked about this story has a lot to offer i feel like by not narrowing in on at least a moment we're doing ourselves as like analysts of the, of the tale, somewhat of a disservice. So if I had to focus in, I would say that the dream with Baal Zaman is really the belly of the whale. Um, he is interacting with what he considers the dark one. And I think that this beyond anything else would force him to continue on the quest. He knows now that the Dark One has taken a specific interest in him and he cannot return to his world because returning there would definitely cause the destruction of his friends and family in Edmunds Field. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with you that the dreams are the most important and that I think the encounter with the White Cloaks is and the interactions with men are more to set the stage for the series as a whole and less this particular book. I mean, this seems pretty clear cut from where I'm standing with a straight five for five on hitting the beats. We mostly spent our time quibbling over either the interesting ideas behind why something might be a moment or why this moment over another one to fit the point. Moving on to the initiation where our main character or uh, fellowship of characters, if you will, uh, undergo their road of trials on their way to their ultimate boon. So Rand's road of trials, I believe, begins on uh, the Camelin Road after they have left Berlan. 
and the Trollocs are attacking them, and Lan leads a charge, and Rand follows there. And later, when Rand, when Rand is on the road with Matt, and they encounter the Dark Friend and the Dancing Cartman, Goad, and Rand calls lightning down. And I think the third trial is when Rand enters Camelin and encounters Loyal and Master Gil for the first time. So all of these things, is Rand changing from being the country bumpkin that he is into something different? The encounter with the Trollocs is Rand acting as a soldier. On the road with Matt, Rand is acting as independent and a resourceful person and using the one power a little bit more, although he might not realize this yet. And then when he enters Camelin, Rand is acting as a diplomat and making friends, even if it's just with a Ogier and an innkeeper. It's still something that he's changing. For a meeting with the higher power, I'm gonna I want to focus in on Morgaze. Morgaze is the queen of Camelin and has power over him, uh, especially in the situation where Rand Rand is in, where he could be killed for just being where he was, and. Morghais tells him, I will give you justice, and I will give you freedom. So those are the gifts that will help him in his future. For the Temptress, this is a hard one for me. There is a pretty obvious Temptress for a different character in Shadar, Lagoth, and the Dagger from Matt. But Rand isn't really as tempted by that. Uh, the best I have to offer you is Balmazan in the Dreams is offering Rand either service or death. Um, for an Atoma with a creator... After Rand is at, it goes to the eye of the world and travels away, he hears a voice in his head that says, only the chosen one can do what must be done if he will. So here is the creator actually talking to Rand and saying to him, you have to, you're have, you have to be the one to affect the world. I will not. For our apotheosis, I think when Rand realizes he can use the one power, and strikes at Balzaman's cord, that is a new perception and knowledge and resolves him for the rest of the quest. And uh, for our ultimate boon, again, Rand realizing that he is, can use the one power, that he is greater than what he thought he was, and receiving the dragon banner from the Eye of the World, I think indicates that he is the dragon reborn. All right, well, starting with your road to trials, uh, you focus on one that shifts him into a soldier um, and then one as more of a leader and then into a diplomat, which using even the knowledge that we have within this singular novel showcases the things that might be useful to him as the potential dragon reborn. Um, I like this, but I think there's some problems I have with it. And the first one having to do with him as a soldier, um, I think he has some inherent abilities that are shown where he definitely holds his own against things that perhaps others in his village might have had a hard time with. But we see it on, in the other two uh, important characters, his friends from the Two Rivers, have a similar ability. And I, I kind of want to focus down onto his war cry. Well, when he goes into battle, we see Rand repeatedly, not just at this point in the book, but throughout, uh, reference Manatharen, the ancient name for his homeland. But I question that because it seems somewhat contrived. We know that 
Rand isn't from the Two Rivers. It's been said by his own father as well as numerous people that he meets. So I feel like it's somewhat of a deceptive kind of use from the character. Like the character's lying to himself and therefore not truly growing, if that really makes sense. Yeah, I see where you're coming from. Um, I do want to say that Rand, while he wasn't born in the Two Rivers, Rand is a great example of the Two Rivers folk. He he was raised there. That's who he is, even though it's not his blood. So that's what Rand is saying is more important to him. But I do see where he's not truly accepting that he is he is something else yet. Okay. Um I think that the relationship that him and Matt foster with each other as friends, but also as like really relying on each other, there's stages in this tale on the way to Camelin in which one of them or the other is near death and completely reliant on the other. I don't really see it as an independent person slash leader because you see Matt doing nearly identical things to him. And I think this is smart on Jordan's part because it keeps us, you know, wondering about which one of them is the most important. Although any reader with some amount of internal, uh, some amount of reasoning is going to say that the character whose point of view, the whole story is from is going to be the one, but I Perrin for dragon reborn 2020 (laughs) that, I, I just think that the what you were trying to showcase as Rand's real growth in this section is so closely paralleled by exactly what Matt does that it takes away a bit of Rand's uniqueness here. That growth of Rand experiences is paralleled by Matt, but I don't think that they take away from each other. I think that both of our characters here are growing from the country bumpkins. They are into more worldly people. And... We're just focusing on Rand because that's who the hero of this story is. That's fair. Your last point I find fine, although I think some of what influences friendly and diplomatic nature is the people that he's you're trying to portray him with. Like it seems like the innkeeper and uh, the Ogier are fairly easy people to get along with and influence, and that. In fact, with the innkeeper, it's only because he was already told to go there by Tom and that he happened to wear the right color on his you know, sword more than it really had to do with, especially at the beginning, with anything that Rand himself did. So it was more of like a happenstance than any true decision-making or actions on Rand's part in this section. Yeah, that, that was my weakest point. Um, I wanted to highlight Rand as, again, being different. And that's the best example I could find for it. But I, I will admit that that's a weaker point. It's not as challenging as some of the other things Rand experiences. But as far as your meaning with the higher power goes, I mean, it's loose. And it's mainly loose because what she really provides with him is just a temporary escape and no true solutions from even the immediate dangers that he's facing. The Aes Sedai or the Dark Ones, or the White Cloaks. It's just, hey, I'm not going to chop your head off simply for the fact that you fell off a wall that you didn't know what it was. And I, and understanding that she has far more power than him, at least in this situation, 
obviously once we learn of his true nature, her titles seem somewhat pallid in comparison, but in the, in the instance in which he is interacting with her, she does have more power, but I don't think anything she provides him is anything but a temporary gift, if you could call it that at all. And he's saved more act, in, in, in actuality by the daughter of the queen's righteous kind of protectionism than he is really by the queen's almost lack of interest. Yeah, I was I was really on the fence about saying that Elaine was the higher power or Margaze was the higher power. Um, and I went with Margaze because she is the queen and has the title. I, I think you're right. This is very temporary and probably not the best example we've ever had of a meeting with a higher power. Uh, and as far as the temptress goes, Baal Zaman in the dreams, I don't think there's an instance in the entire book. And my argument here will fall apart if you are able to provide one. But there's even in the dreams, there's not an instant in which Rand considers accepting. Even before Moraine tells him that if you accept in the dream, he gains a tether to your heart. Or even before all that, we see Rand and even though we don't see in the dreams, we're 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 led to believe that all the other that the other two men from Edmund Field also do the same in which they completely distance themselves from this temptation that others have fallen uh, fallen to. But I, we don't see even an instance where he considers it. He knows it to be wrong and he avoids it wholeheartedly. So for the Atonement with the Creator, if we look at what Campbell has outlined, um, you know, when we really get down to it, the part I want to focus on is in the middle of our description in which it says that the atonement with the creator is the center point of the journey. And I don't think that the instances in which the creator is speaking inside of Rand's head are anything more than guiding pushes by the creator in the right direction and little forms of enlightenment. Because when you really get down to it, it's the eye of the world, and at least in this tale, that is the center of the journey. It's the goal. It's it's the place where all the things happen, and so both on an emotional under like an understand cognitive understanding level and in a physical sense. So I think that's the only difficulty I have because it's obviously him interacting with his little literal creator but I just feel like it misses some of the importance and that if you weren't reading astutely, you might pass it over simply as the ravings of an insecure person inside his own mind. You're right there. Rand is not at the eye of the world when he hears the voice of the creator in his head. And the whole journey has been focused on getting to the eye of the world, essentially. But the creator is telling him that he can use the power at the eye of the world. An earlier quote is, it is not here saying to him, he has to go back to the eye of the world. So while it doesn't take place at the center of the world, what the creator is telling him is essentially you have to do, you have to do this task. You cannot do it here. Go back to the eye of the world and use it. Bringing your final two points together, the apotheosis and the ultimate boon, um, you know, knowing that he uh, he can use the one power 
and that he is the one that the Dark One was seeking, and how uh, you know how he is the ultimate chosen one, as it were. Um, I think it's pretty useless for me to argue against these points. They they stereotypically fit the hero's journey, and and I think without them, the kind of reveal of Rand's importance would feel. Uh, somewhat neutered in in uh, effect so i'm i'm happy to give those up yeah so i'm ultimately still a little torn on whether their atonement with the creator fits all of our criteria for it but there is certainly as we said probably now far too many times a meeting eh, there is some sort of meeting with his very literal creator and then as far as the rest of the points go, I think I think it's pretty clear that uh, the meeting with the higher power and the temptress might have been filled other places in this novel with other characters. Uh, but everything else seemed a pretty easy concede. And diving into the final two and a half pages of every novel, we give you the return. So for Rand's refusal of the return, uh, I'm going to focus on this point where Rand wants to go away from the world. He he doesn't want to stick in a city. He doesn't want to go to Tarvalon. He doesn't want to return to Edmondsfield. He, he wants to go away from the world because he is scared, rightfully so, of having the one power and going mad. Um, for our magic flight and rescue from without, we have to go back a little bit and when Rand travels to Tarwin Gap and back to the Eye of the World and uses the power in the Eye that he did not generate and had no no uh, part in making, I think that those represent our magical flight and rescue from without. So for crossing the return threshold, we have Rand returning from the Blight into Faldara. For Master of the Two Worlds, I think that Rand, while he's practicing the sword with Lan, is demonstrating this. He is stubborn in his refusal to continue on with Land and Moraine or stay in the city of Far- Faldara. Um, and that's representing his two rivers values, but he's also learning the sword, demonstrating that he still has stuff to learn about the new world that he has entered. And finally, for freedom to live, I'm going to have a quote from Land to Rand in the same scene. Land says, you can do as you will, Sheepherder, when Rand asks if he's going to be stopped from going out into the uh, going out into the world on his own. All right, I have the first question I have for you is we're going to try to keep it in order here, the way that it's typically outlined. Um, why do you think? And I know it's not necessary for the refusal of the return to have happened. Why do you think it is that Rand is persuaded to return in this particular book? Because I just think that's interesting to me. So Zach, I think you bring up a good point. Um, I don't think Rand actually returns to returns in this book. He doesn't. He doesn't represent that because we know his story is going to continue. He's a little bit stuck in the world of the quest, so his refusal to return is. Mm-hmm. He's never convinced away from his refusal to return in this book. It does end with him still wanting to. Go away from the world, as I say, in the freedom to live. Okay. Now, do you think 
this is diminished by the fact that the thing he would be returning to is not the thing that he started from because we've had both sides of that coin. We've had stories like the Hobbit in which the hero ultimately returns to the Shire, but we haven't, and, and we've had stories in which mainly due to the fact that they're the first books of, of many in a series, the hero has not yet returned to the place of which they, from which they came from. So this is something I wanted to talk about for a little bit. The return isn't a return to the place where the hero started. It's a return from the world of the quest. So there is a small difference in there, but a lot of times, like you said, our hero is going to continue on with our story and, you know, sequels, or they cannot return to the world that they started from because of the changes that happen on the quest. And I think that, this instance is the second one. He cannot return to the world that he came from because of the changes he's undertaken on his quest. All right. Well, in that instance, using that, is he refusing to return or is a return not available to him? Because there's definitely a difference in the fact that you've chosen not to do something versus you can't do something. Uh, you're right. It's It's hard to make a point that Rand is refusing to return to this because he doesn't have a choice. I think you're right. The magic flight, yeah, I mean, it's, while he's not passing out, he's magically moving, and it's away from this climax, and yeah, sure. Um, Rescue from without the power within the eye, aren't we supposed to, and I, and correct me if I'm wrong, Alex, but there is a certain amount of the fact that the dragon while he's like the user of the power. Like, yes, there are, were other men who could use it, but there was no one who could use it like the dragon. And that, to me, then shifts the idea more of to an unlocking of his own potential and less of an influence from an outside quote-unquote, like, individual or power. And so if this is simply unlocking his own capabilities, is he really being rescued from... Is he really being rescued by something, or is he rescuing himself? So I don't know how much I really want to get into this, but Rand is the dragon reborn, but he is not uh, Louis Theron Kinslayer. He, He is a separate personality who is this person reincarnated. He doesn't have access to the power like Lewis Theron did. He he doesn't have this knowledge. He is gaining the knowledge on his own. And as a person who's just starting to channel, he doesn't have access to the power in the same way that he would have in his past life. He he didn't generate the power in the eye. That was there and he used it showing that he has the ability to wield that much power but he could not have generated that himself. That's fair. And I think the one thing that you've been like kind of skirting around that really solidifies it for you. And it didn't really come to me to what you said. So I'm willing to give it to you is that it was more the sacrifice of like the thousand or hundred or however many it was. I Sedai that made the eye of the world that led him to be able to wield it and like it to be there waiting for him than it was necessarily his innate ability to use it. Because if the one had not been there, then the other wouldn't have mattered. 
So as far as the crossing of the return threshold, the return to Faldara, um, fine. Like he's left the blight. He's back at a place that he's been previously. Um, I think it's still a foreign enough place that it doesn't really represent Rand's previous world very well because the time he spent in the Blight while monumental was not very long lived. But I'm willing to say he's returned to at least a semblance of normalcy. Um, but as far as the Master of Two Worlds go, you've pretty much said that hey, I've been able to wield the one power, that's one world, and the other world is my potential? It, it just, it seems like while A, and you've said it yourself several times, Rand is not Theron Kinslayer. He is not the master of the one power. He may be able to wield it, but there is a myriad of things he's not aware of in the in, in the wielding of it and, and the proper use of it. So I think that shies away from any sort of mastery there. Um, and on the other hand, he doesn't really know what his role is beyond being the Dragon Reborn. And that title in and of itself holds so many dangers and myths and you know personal fears that he himself has grown up with, deep-rooted inside him, that the Dragon Reborn is the end of the world, that... I don't think it shows any mastery of the idea that he needs to become some sort of ideal. So I, I'm just struggling at all to see. I, I feel like Rand is very much a master of no worlds at the end of this book, and that is very intentional on Jordan's part. Yeah, um, it, it is a stretch to call Rand a master of a world at this point. Um I don't really have an uh, argument against that. He still has uh, so much to learn. Yeah. That it's difficult to say he's a master. But... Almost like 13 books worth. <laughs> and then finally, uh, your quote that you have here where it's, you know, Lan saying, you can do as you will, sheep herder. But you, you were kind of selective in your quote selection here. Uh, because right after that, he says, or as the pattern weaves for you. Uh, implying that, you know, essentially, uh, Rand, as the Dragon Reborn, is entirely bound to the weave, whether it is he himself weaving or the pattern weaving it for him. Um, his He has a destiny that must be followed. Um, we've seen it from the allusions to the prophecies that, he, that have to come to fruition, uh, as well as several other instances. So... Rand, while he thinks he has some control of his immediate future, we as the readers, and I think Rand in the back of his mind, re as well as the characters who are more in the know around him know that even the choices that he thinks he's making are furthering the progression of the weave. Uh, so one thing I do want to point out is that Rand is a Tavirian. The pattern is weaving it around him, so he can... He has some choice in his life the pattern isn't isn't in total control because of what he is but the pattern still has a lot of control so uh, I'll, I'll concede that point closing out the book then i think we've seen what is kind of a 
more typical return uh, that we're or a pattern one might say uh, of the return for books that are parts of series or especially the first books in series that we've covered so far where the return is a little sketchier and hitting all the points. Part of that obviously stems from the fact that we're not coming home to the Shire yet. We, uh, we might just in fact be setting off on the majority of our journey. Uh, running up with a final score of 12 out of 17, which is on the higher end so far of everything we've looked at. Uh, Personally, I will say that I was a little surprised to find that we lost both Master of Two Worlds and Freedom to Live. Even though we occasionally link those concepts, I feel like they normally tend to end up a split decision. Uh, I'm the only one approaching this series uh, with fresh eyes as a Wheel of Time virgin. And I gotta say, I enjoyed it. I'm sure we're going to do the rest of the books as part of the series, but I might not be reading those for the first time by the time we get that far down this podcast, because I'm going to guess I'm going to be buying an omnibus and slowly ticking through all of these in the background and ignoring the books I should be reading for this podcast. Um, I will say that, well, I met, I enjoyed the story and I'm really fascinated by the world and we could nerd out about the world, the magic system, everything else for an entire other podcast. And in fact, uh, if you recall, our friends at Inking Out Loud have devoted plenty of time to that if you want to go check them out again. Um, I will say that I found myself part of due to the story structure going in fits and bursts with this book, there were points where I was unable to put it down. And then there was a day or two where I had to force myself to read through some of the slower parts. What was it like for you guys coming back for the first time in a while? Uh, I actually started reading The Wheel of Time again right before we started doing the podcast. So this is my second time reading The Eye of the World this year. And I, I had some trouble getting into it again, just because I had read it so recently. Um, but I do really enjoy this book, and I hope I didn't. We didn't include too many spoilers um, for people who are reading for the first time. Since I've read through the series, there are some things where I, I know that it's hard to keep. It's hard to keep everything separate, um, and I really enjoy this. I'm looking forward to reading the rest of these and focusing on different characters than Rand as we go through the rest of the series. Yeah, it's kind of like trying to talk about the character of Gandalf without remembering that he has a true reign of power the whole time. I think as I reread the story, I found myself very frustrated with how naive the characters were in the reread, especially at the beginning. Knowing the kind of powers and forces that they come up against and come to wield as the story progresses, seeing their more humble origins and them kind of bumbling their way through things or being guided more strong-handedly through things, I found myself more frustrated with the characters than I remember being on my first read. But overall, I think the story does a good job of immersing you and, and kind of caring about the characters, which I think is a strong point. Thanks for joining us this week. And uh, I still ultimately feel a little bit undecided on the atonement with the creator. So feel free to reach out to us at a hero's journey pod at facebook.com or email us at a hero's journey pod at gmail.com and let us know whether you ultimately agree with 
that whether that moment really constitutes a confluence of events in Rand's life. Uh, and don't forget to also give us a rating on wherever you are listening to our delightful podcast because it really helps us out in ways that I'm not sure I ever appreciated until we were doing this. Thank you again for joining us. As always, I've been your host and judge, Jack. This is Alex. And I'm Zach. And join us next week as we go exploring Prince Caspian. Yay! Oh, thank you. Pointing to what is the center instead of being the center point. (laughs) To use the own language in a twisted way. (sighs) I'm giving a half half 